Go ahead, have a seat. Good morning. My name is Greg Howe. I volunteer and serve on the preaching team here at New Life Fellowship. It's good to see you here on Sunday. If you need a Bible, please um, raise your hand, and one of our ushers would be happy to bring a Bible up to the front over here and to anybody else who needs one. So uh, keep your hand up, and the ushers are coming uh, around right now. Um, I like watching how people die. I don't actually kill them, nor am I haunting, um, you know, uh, nursing homes or hospitals. But I think there's something amazing and holy about the opportunity to watch people um, in their last days, weeks, months, or years. Um, I think part of the reason I watch it is um, I watch uh, some people, as they begin to move into their last years of life, become... um, more generous, more loving, more expectant, more attentive to God. Um, right? they're, the, they're the kind of people that you just, you just think, I love being with them. Um, I remember at the church I grew up in, there was a group of senior citizens, and um, when they would open the Bible before the sermon, the look of expectancy on their face, the welcome they'd give all the little kids as they'd run around the church, I thought, I want to end like that. Right? And then we all know other people who, um, as they go through their last years of life, um, don't follow that path. Um, the inward anger and resentments and bitterness begin to show through more and more as they begin to lose their inhibitions, and they just become bitter. Right? They, they get harder. They're angry all the time. They're, they're the folk that, um, you know, some, some of us family, where you just think, I will visit you. Because I must, but mentally I have the time limit of when I'm planning to end this visit. You know, unless God speaks to me, I am not staying in that room any longer than I need to. And um, I like watching how people face their last days because it instructs me because I know I want to end well. And I think when you watch people in their last days, you actually get a a different picture of their vital signs. You, You don't get how fast their heart is beating, but you begin to see what kind of heart they have. Right? You don't get a sense of how much oxygen may be in their blood, but you do get a sense of how much scripture has um, been built into their blood and is informing who they are. And when you watch how people face their last days, you get a good sense of the priorities and what's important to them. Um, As a church, we've been talking about what are the vital signs of a healthy uh, Christian community. And so um, we've uh, we've talked about... uh, We've talked about how scripture influences us and what does it mean to um, allow ourselves to rest in and marinate ourselves in scripture. We've talked about what does it mean to stop, to celebrate, to rest, um, to um, delight in the gift of a Sabbath as fundamental aspects of what it means to be a Christian community. Today, we're actually just going to talk about what does it mean to be in community and why it matters. And I want to say very clearly and up front, it's clear that Scripture has no understanding of what it means to be a Christian in isolation. In fact, it's inconceivable to the writers of Scripture that you would define yourself as a Christian by yourself without considering yourself to be part of a larger community. When Paul writes his letters, he's not writing to an individual, he's writing to a group of people who are listening to the Scripture together. So when he says, put on the full armor of God, he's not saying you individually put on the full armor of God, but the whole community 
together put on the full armor of God. When the psalmists are writing, they're not saying just you in your loneliness or in your joy sing to the Lord, but we as a community sing to the Lord together. And the story of the Old Testament is designed to say, as a people of God, this is our history. Um, Pastor and theologian John Stott once said, you know, the very purpose of Jesus' self-giving on the cross was not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to create a new community whose members would belong to, uh, belong to him, love one another, and eagerly serve the world. And from the day of Pentecost onward, it's been clear that conversion to Christ means also conversion to the community of Christ. And Paul puts it this way in Ephesians, right? He made us one new people together first, and then he made this new community and reconciled them to God. This is what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. To be a Christian is to be in community. And so as I was trying to think through how do we think about what, is a, what are the marks of a good community, how would we know, and is it really that important in an age when we can get all of our Christian information by a podcast or a radio or TV program in the comfort of our own home, when... As busy New Yorkers, frankly, it's hard to make time to be with people. Is it worth it? I thought, well, let's look at Paul's last days. What shaped his priorities and values at the end of his life? And so we're going to look at 2 Timothy. It's his last letter. He's writing it from prison in Rome. He knows his time is short. He, he basically says, the game is up. It's about over now. And I think when you get to, at that stage, when you realize death is no longer a distant reality, but a present reality, it sharpens what you think you need to say. And 2 Timothy is his last letter. And he's writing to um, a young Christian leader who's very dear to him, so he's sharing his heart. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 9 through 22, and um, let me read them, pray, and then we'll begin together. Listen to how Paul talks about the people in his life. Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. Uh, for Demas, because he's loved this world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone on to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia, and only Luke is with me. So get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus over to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he has strongly opposed our message. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it, and I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus said in Corinth, Corinth and Tromphemus sick in my, I left Tromphemus sick in Miletus. Do your best to get here before winter. Eubulus greets you and so does Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brothers and sisters. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you all. 
Let's pray. Um, Lord, we desire to hear your voice. So may your Holy Spirit be our guide and your glory our greatest concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Did you notice how even at the end of Paul's life, right, as he's thinking about how to order the entire missionary enterprise he's been leading, how critical it was to him that people were around him, right? He talks about, hey, um, Luke is still with me. Um, probably Luke, the writer of the book of Acts. And um, Claudins and Pudens and Linus and Claudia, they're all here with me, um, Timothy. I, I'm surrounded by community. And it struck me um, how critical it was for Paul to be surrounded by community. If you read all of his correspondence, all of his epistles, he's always talking at the end of the letter about the people that he wants to say hi to, about the people who are with him, who are passing on um, concern, right? It's his own little social networking moment. Um, at the end of the letters. And I love that he's surrounded by community because community is critical to our ability uh, to function. It, it did occur to me even last week, if you weren't here last week, Rich interviewed Pete about how do you practice Sabbath, right? How do you practice it as a, a, a single person? How do you practice it as a married, fa uh, married couple or a family? Um, what can you do and don't do? And if you paid attention, what Pete kept saying over and over is, don't focus on what you cannot do Focus on the invitation God's offering you, right? God's really just saying, take a break. Cease working. Celebrate with me. Enjoy and be refreshed by me. Do it as you can. But what struck me in every one of those was how community got involved, right? If, if you're a single person thinking, I don't know, a day alone doesn't sound attractive, right? The invitation was maybe call the other people in your life, other single friends, families around you say, hey, could we celebrate together? Enjoy a meal, rest together, go play somewhere, right? If you're a married couple with small children like I am, where the thought of like, really? A Sabbath would mean, mean no children for a couple hours? I mean, I love my kids, but, right? Um, it's Sabbath celebrated in community. Maybe it's a spouse saying to another spouse, let me take the kids for four hours so that you have four uninterrupted hours to rest, to delight in the Lord's presence. And then let's swap. Or maybe it's families swapping children, not totally swapping children, right? But like, here, could you take my kids this week so that my wife and I have a little bit more of a restful Sabbath and next week let me take your children? Or I was thinking about single parents in the congregation. What a Sabbath gift it would be if some of us who had a little bit more capacity would say, could I take your child for a fun Saturday with my kids so that for eight hours you might just have the chance to rest? to get done those things that would nourish your soul that you just can't possibly do because you're the sole child care provider, right? What a gift that would be, but it requires community to engage in the Sabbath together. So what does a healthy community look like? What does it involve and engage? What do we need to become and who do we need to be so we could have healthy community together? I want to suggest first that healthy community always engages the heart. What strikes me most about Second Timothy at the end is how, um, um, how you hear Paul's voice in the most human, vulnerable way, right? He begins a section um, telling Timothy, do your best to come to me quickly. And then at the end, right, there's this heartbreaking repetition of that in verse uh, 21. Do your best to come to get here before winter, Okay. Right? Um, Paul's in Rome. Uh, Timothy is in kind of modern-day Turkey, probably. And he's saying, look, um, if you don't leave soon because of the weather, you'll never make it here. You won't be able to cross the seas. 
And do you hear the longing in his voice when he says, do your best to come to you quickly? And then a couple months later, make sure you get here before winter, okay? I, I don't think I can wait until the spring to see you. I need you here now, right? Do you hear how vulnerable he's being? Do you hear how open his heart must be to Timothy? And um, his desperate need, I need you here. I don't want to go through this next season alone. I think any community worth the name community has to have that kind of emotional vulnerability, the ability to share need together, right? It can't just be the casual, hey, how are you? How was work this week? That um, so often masquerades as community for people in New York City because the answer is like, oh, I've been really busy. Oh, yeah, me too. And then we talk about how busy we are. Real community demands that we're able to say to one another, I need you. I cannot possibly make it through this week without a conversation with you. Right? Not in a sick kind of codependent way, but in a vulnerable, I cannot do this alone because I was not designed by God to do this alone. Right? The one bad thing in creation that God said was, it is not good for this human being to be alone. And Paul says at the end of his life, could you get here before winter? Because... Spring's a long time away. We long, I think, all of us, for community that is emotionally vulnerable and meaningfully engaged with one another. Um, I think of a small group I was a part of in Chicago before I moved here to New York City. When I think about the people in my small group, I think of my friend. Um, I've known him when we were both college students together. Um, I watched him get married. I watched that marriage struggle. And um, I watched that marriage fall apart and end in divorce. And I remember walking with my friend during those last couple years when he realized it was not going to work as hard as they were trying. Um, and then walked him with, as he tried to recover from that. I remember in my small group, uh, Rebecca, who was um, the chair of a small community um, organization, and she worked hard in very resource-limited ways to serve that community, and our small group decided to celebrate her last days as the board chair, so we hid in a closet in that meeting room for over 35 minutes, standing quietly in the dark, so that after she adjourned the meeting, we could pop out of that room and go, surprise, congratulations, with a cake and candles, but we were just there for 35 minutes in the dark, waiting for that meeting to finish, because we wanted to be there at a moment where she was celebrating and felt relief. I remember another guy in that small group um, just a year after we moved here to New York calling us in tears because he was um, telling us that his wife had just left him because she was having an affair. And we were one of the first people that he called and he just needed somebody to weep with. Somebody to care for him, somebody to invite him, uh, someone to be safe with. Don't we all look long for community like that? What would it take for us to actually make ourselves vulnerable? To express our needs to one another? To trust another human being that God has placed them in our lives and that they could bear some of the hurt and pain that we're carrying? What would it be like for us as a community here at a church to be actually so deeply engaged in who God has made us to be, so resourced and nourished by Jesus Christ himself that when somebody comes and says, I need your help right now, that we would have the resources to open our hearts and open our lives to say, the Lord receives you here through me, and I'm going to walk with you and bear your burden with you. Not for you, but with you, as a way of Christ manifesting his love for you right now, right? 
It would require us to have the kind of spaciousness in our life where it's not an interruption but falls neatly within the margins that God has given us, which is why Sabbath would be important to us as a community. It would require us to have a lot more wisdom and compassion than we really have, which is why we're going to immerse ourselves in Scripture together. It would require us to be focused on some of the people around us, not just our own needs. Don't we all long for a community like that? A healthy community isn't just spiritually vulnerable and able to serve one another. A healthy community is also constantly engaged in mission. Notice, well, let me back up for a second. Um, if we need a model for this, let's think about Jesus at Gethsemane. Um, here's a person who had perfect communion with God. Here's a person who had immediate intimacy with God. And here's a person where he was desperate, facing the cross, his first gut instinct was to say, I need to pray, and his second instinct was to call his three closest friends together and say, would you pray with me? Because praying alone right now seems unimaginable. If Jesus Christ could express his need in that way, we shouldn't be too proud to do so either. Um, Good community always engages in mission. Notice what Paul is doing at the beginning of this passage, right? Now, Demas has abandoned the mission, but look what else is happening. Oh, Crescens, one of our good friends, he's gone to Galatia, which is in kind of modern-day middle of Turkey. Uh, Titus, I've sent over to Dalmatia, which is close to Bosnia-Herzegovina right now. Um, only Luke is left with me because everybody else has gone. Could you get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful for me in my ministry. And I sent Tychicus, one of our other friends, over to Ephesus. Paul's constantly sending people around because even though he's lonely and wants Timothy to be there, this isn't going to stop them from engaging in the mission that God has called them to. I particularly love the invitation, bring Mark with you, because Mark had abandoned the mission before. And now toward the end of Paul's life, Paul looks at him and goes, I need him here. He's actually really useful, right? There's been reconciliation. There's been restoration. And there's hope for the Demises of the world who might walk away for a time, but for whom God isn't done with them yet. And Paul gathers this group of people, and then he begins to push them out into mission. Because biblical community is always gathered for the purpose of mission, not just interpersonal navel-gazing. One temptation Christians always have, I see it all the time on the college campuses that InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, where I work with, um, engages. Christian fellowships are always like, do we feel close enough yet? Do we have enough community? Do we feel tight enough? Do we love one another enough? It's almost like that really creepy dating relationship that we sometimes watch where people walk up to each other and go like, do you, how much do you love me now? Do you love me more now than you did yesterday? And the other person's like, I don't know. Do you want me to write it? And they just talk about how much they love one another. And it's not healthy temperature, taking, it's weird navel-gazing, right? That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for a community that has sufficient emotional depth to care for one another for the purpose of being shaped in Christ-likeness to serve the people around us. I want to suggest that as I've looked at communities that have lasted over time, the strongest, tightest, most long-lasting communities um, that I've ever seen are veterans. Have you ever watched a group of um, veterans come together on Memorial Day or Veterans Day? If you've ever had the privilege of watching this, right, 
though they may not have seen each other for 20 or 30 years, or if you're watching um, the remaining group of World War II veterans meet each other at kind of special celebrations, there's a connection and intimacy, a commitment, loyalty, and joy they have for one another that I've never seen sustained over that period of time in any other group of people. And the reason why I think they feel this way, the reason why I think they have it is they've been in the battle together. Right? They've engaged in the mission together. There's one way of gathering community, getting close to one another, which is just to hold hands, look at each other, and begin to walk toward each other. And in the end, it becomes really uncomfortable. Another way of growing closer together is to choose a common destination, a common point, and begin to walk together over time and over geography in the same direction toward the same goal, which is pursuing Jesus wherever he leads us. Right? That's how you sustain relationship over time and geography and distance. And I think when you do that, suddenly community becomes healthy and it springs uh, more fully into existence. Um, one example of this was a colleague of mine um, named Robbie Castleman. Robbie um, was in a series of team meetings in Madison, Wisconsin, right? So she's just doing work meetings when she got a call that her husband uh, Breck, who, lived, who was in Florida, had a massive heart attack late one afternoon. And the doctor said, um, the next 12 hours will basically decide whether he'll live or die. So Robbie put the phone down, right? And she's in the middle of team meetings. Like, they're talking about planning conferences. I mean, there's, and so obviously her supervisor said, what do you need? What, what can we do for you? How, how do you want, if you want to go home right now, we will book you a ticket, and if there's no ticket at our local airport, we'll drive you to Chicago three hours away to make sure that you get a connection immediately to Florida. What do you need? And as Robbie thought and prayed about it, she said, um, I'd rather stay here tonight. She said, I love my husband. We, we've been married for over 20 years, um, but the reality is uh, he doesn't know where I am right now. And he's either going to live or die tonight, and my presence won't change anything. But um, if he dies tonight, the people I want to be with me are you, my work colleagues. Why? Because um, we've engaged in the mission together. We've prayed together. We've served together. I've failed you, and you've forgiven me. You've hurt me, and I've forgiven you. You and I have done the things that Jesus has called us to do. You're the people I will trust with my soul and heart if I lose the most per important person in my life tonight. I can't imagine a safer place I'd rather be than with the people I'm doing work with right now. Because when you engage in mission together, you experience community together in a deeper way than just um, attempting to foster increasing a uh, sense of warmth or community. You're actually relying on one another, trusting one another. So, brothers and sisters, what would it take for our communities to actually engage in mission together? Because I want to suggest to you, if the small group that meets in Forest Hills isn't good news to Forest Hills, to the community in Forest Hills, it doesn't deserve to be called a Christian community that meets in Forest Hills. Right? If our small groups in Astoria aren't actually a blessing to the people of Astoria, not just the New Life people in Astoria, but every person in Astoria, it's not a legitimate expression of the kingdom of God in Astoria. Right? That's why we do the Community Development Corporation here in Elmhurst. Because if we aren't good news to our neighbors who live um, in the settlement hotel just a couple blocks away, we aren't good news. We're betraying the gospel. If we aren't investing in the young people in our community so that they're experiencing not just the message of the gospel, but the reality of the gospel as we come alongside them in their actual need 
whether it's in the criminal justice system or convincing somebody they need to go to college, we aren't expressing the good news. We're a community that exists just for ourselves, and in the end, we're going to miss something vital about what it means to be community. It's because we're so committed as a congregation to community that after the service, we're actually going to invite anybody who's a college student, anybody who's a recent graduate, up to like your late 20s, to consider what your role might be in God's mission. Um, every three years, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, the ministry I work with, sponsors a conference called the Urbana Student Missions Conference. Over 300,000 people have come to this conference where they've heard what is going on in the world, what does God say about his mission, and then begun to pray about what God might want to do with them in his mission. There'll be 250 mission agencies and seminaries exhibiting there, 150 seminars designed to help you find your place in God's mission because we're a congregation that wants to mobilize everybody to engage in God's mission. If you fall between the age of a senior in high school um, this coming fall to in your late 20s or later, we'd like to you to consider to, uh, coming. We'll be meeting in the blue room immediately after service to talk about what would it mean to mobilize a group of New Life people to come. And if you're the kind of person who goes, I'm a little old for that now, but I would think of it as an amazing privilege to help somebody get there by creating a scholarship or by praying with people who are going, come to, to the Blue Room after the service. Chelsea um, Whitfield, who is somewhere in the congregation over there, will be hosting it along with Brunel. We would love to mobilize because for us to be a healthy congregation, a healthy community, we need to engage in mission too. Doesn't your heart actually warm up, what would it take for us to become a congregation like that? I want to suggest um, a healthy congregation also engages the whole person. Um, it meets the basic needs of life that people have. Notice what Paul says, right? Um, come quickly. Hey, hey, as you're traveling, could you pick up my coat? Oh, oh, and the scrolls, particularly the parchments, could you bring them with you too? What I love about Paul is how practical he is, right? He's not just dealing like with the spiritual realities at 30,000 feet. He's talking about really practical things. Because you're part of my community, could you grab my coat? I left it three countries behind. And winter is coming and I need my coat. Because at those times, the coat wasn't something you wore outside, it was also your blanket. I mean, it was everything to you. Could you grab my coat for me, right? Because a good community watches out for practical needs, we don't just go, oh, that's really terrible. Have a great week and walk away. Um, I think of a colleague of mine named Nicole. Uh, Nicole is a great missionary for Jesus up in upstate New York. She's single. Um, she lives alone in this very small house, and she travels frequently to proclaim the gospel on college and university campuses. And she's part of this teeny little church. And we keep telling her for years, like, why don't you move closer to a city where you'd have more people around you? And she goes, here's why. Because my church is community to me. Um, they know I'm busy, so... Um, nearly once a week while I'm working on my computer, I'll see somebody will knock on the door, I'll open it, and it's a woman from church. She has cleaning supplies with her, and she'll say, I'm here to clean your bathroom. I know you're busy. Don't get up. I already brought everything, and a woman will come from the churches quietly and clean her bathrooms for her so she doesn't have to do it. Every Sunday, there's two families at church because it's upstate New York. Casseroles seem to be a big thing. And so um, every week, there's a family that bakes a casserole and cuts one quarter of their casserole out, puts it in a separate container, freezes it, and delivers it to her church so that Nicole can pick it up out of the freezer, so that whenever she's traveling, she has a ready meal ready for her. When she had um, new cabinets that she had to put in because her house was flooded, they sat in her um, teeny little house for three weeks until a family at church came and said, get out of the house Saturday, five of us are coming, we're going to tear down your cabinets and put them up for you. Nicole said, 
That's community. Community needs, meets practical needs, right? Um, community meets spiritual and intellectual needs as you're doing it. I love the fact that Paul says, hey, as you pick up my coat, grab my books too, right? Um, now, the best guess is that the parchments are, and the scrolls are probably the um, Old Testament scriptures and um, books are either his notebooks or other texts that he's studying. Think about all the things Paul could have asked for, right? If it had been me like, hey, Troas has amazing fish. Could you pick up some as you're on the way, right? There's amazing drink, right? Paul says, besides my coat, I need books. I need my scriptures. Do we love the scriptures and our books as much as we love our clothes? Would that be among the last things that you ask for? I think I may have a couple weeks of life left. Could you bring me a great novel to read, a little bit of scripture I could study, and maybe a book of theology I could meditate on? Um, Part of what community does is it stimulates us and challenges us to think about what we believe, who we are, and what the world is like. Um, Studies show that people in community, whether married community or a friendship network that functions like community, always live longer. Not only do they live longer, but their minds remain sharper. Even if dementia begins to kick in, dementia progresses more slowly if you live in community. And you're happier, frankly. They actually did studies of churches, and they said it's not religion that does it. It's the fact that if you're in a small group or in a congregation where you know people, you're healthier, you live longer, and you're smarter. It has nothing to do with the depth of your devotion. It's the community that that churches provide. Um, How do we engage and provide practical needs like that? One of the churches I used to belong to back in Chicago, when there, a person would have a baby, the church would sign up to provide meals for the first 30 days. It was a lot of meals we cooked. But part of what you promised was you wouldn't just drop off a meal, but as the family was able, you'd eat the meal with them. So they weren't isolated with their child, but they'd actually be somebody to come and say, I brought you a meal, let me heat it up, let's eat together so that you have some contact, let me wash up and leave so that we bound ourselves more tightly into communities we celebrated in our joy and in our exhaustion. What would it take to be the kinds of communities where we meet practical needs, physical needs and intellectual needs of the people around us? Right? Not just the people who are already here, but the people we haven't reached yet. What would that look like? What would it look like to have spaciousness in our lives to do it so it didn't feel like a burden, but actually felt like a privilege to walk alongside the people who needed help? How would we have to change the ways that we live so we could become a community like that? Last thing, community isn't just emotionally intense or engaged in mission or meeting practical needs. In the end, of course, being Christians, we want community to be a spiritually formative place for us. It's one of the reasons that our small groups here at New Life um, focus on emotionally healthy skill development or on scripture study and prayer together because Um, In the end, we want to be formed into Christ-likeness for the sake of other people. We can't do it on our own. So notice how Paul mentors Timothy um, in that middle part of that section, right? He does two things, one of which is he provides some spiritual warnings of things to avoid. Watch out for this guy, Alexander. He's opposed me, and he opposes the Scripture. Avoid him at all costs. And then he quotes some Scripture. God will repay Alexander for everything he's done. Don't worry about the problem, Timothy. Just walk around him right? Even to the end, Paul is instructing Timothy, this is a person to avoid. Be careful of the spiritual danger. And then he's giving Timothy something to emulate. And Paul talks about, you know, at my first trial, nobody was with me. I was all alone, 
may God forgive them, but I knew the Lord was with me and he saved me from the lion's mouths. What's interesting about this passage is that um, there's barely a word in there that doesn't come out of Psalm 22. You can actually track Psalm 22 and the things that Paul are saying um, idea by idea. And what strikes me about this is Paul shaping what his community is like is that Paul is shaping his life around Scripture, that he's so immersed in Scripture, that he's so... Um, yeah, he's so immersed in Scripture that spontaneously as he tries to describe who he is and his life experiences, he uses the language of Scripture to describe it. He does it from a God perspective, not just a human perspective, right? He sees the way the Holy Spirit is working even when nobody else will. That's why we as a congregation meditate on Scripture, as Rich was teaching us um, three weeks ago. Because we need to so immerse ourselves in Scripture, to so chew on it regularly, to suck on it like a sweet, right? Just allow it to roll around in our hearts and our minds and our soul so that in the spontaneous moments of life, Scripture begins to come out. In our way of seeing the world, it's defined by the Scripture's way of defining the world, not just by our sense of what the world is like. So that when all else gets stripped away, God's Word is still bearing fruit in our lives. The only line that doesn't come from Psalm 22 in this entire section from Paul is that one line, may it not be counted against them. And who says, Father, forgive them? They don't know what they do, right? Paul's immersed in the words of Jesus as well. Um, what would it take for us to have communities that were saturated in Scripture? Not just a quick study so we are informed by it, not just memorization or a quick talk through it, but steeped in it until it influenced all our... Here's why this matters to me, or one of the reasons it matters to me. Um, I like watching how people end their lives, and I've talked to a lot of my friends who either do ministry in nursing homes or have um, elderly parents in nursing homes now, particularly families with Alzheimer's. And um, inevitably what my Christian's friends tell me is they go visit their mother or grandmother or grandfather is that often you meet them and it's like they're in a thick fog, right? They don't recognize you. They don't remember what happened. They're unclear about the days. Um, but what most of my friends have said is when we read Scripture to them, the fog begins to clear. Sometimes we'll sing a hymn, like, How Great Thou Art, that my grandparent sung from childhood. And then it's like the skies open, the sun shines, and they begin to sing along from memory these great hymns. And for, for a few moments, they're clear. Right? There's something about having immersed themselves in the great hymns of the faith, in the words of Scripture, decade after decade, that even when all your other memories get stripped away, in a short moment, the clouds part, the sun shines, and they're in their right minds, and they're singing the words of Scripture. That's why um, I try to pray the hours. I make sure I pray the Lord's Prayer, because my hope is if my mind gets taken, gets taken away from me at some time in the future, I hope when somebody comes to pray with me and they start with the words, Our Father, out of the haze, I'll say, Who is in heaven? And together we'll say, Hallowed be your name. And I will walk my way through receiving my daily bread, praying that I'm kept from temptation, and trusting that I will be delivered from evil. Because his kingdom and his power and his glory are forever. What would it look like to be communities that saturate ourselves in the experience of prayer and worship and scripture so that we'd have this kind of experience together. Doesn't your heart long for that? 
it's going to require some discipline for us to get there. That's why um, I'm inviting you, if you want to take a step toward being part of a community that's emotionally honest, that's engaged in mission together, that will stimulate you and challenge you to immerse yourselves in scriptures, then sign up for a small group. Our hope is this fall we'll see 20 to 30 new small groups start here at New Life so that people have this kind of intimate experience that we all long for. And so if you haven't already turned in your contact card, put in your name, put the checkbox on, I want to join a small group, and as you leave the service, bring it down to the Welcome Center at the front desk, or bring it up here to the, uh, to the stage. We'd be happy to take it from you. But I beg you, immerse yourself in a small group to experience the kind of community that meets our deepest needs for connection, for mission, for stimulation, and for scripture and God's presence. Well, how do you begin to build a community like that? I think, um, in part, you have to focus and bring yourself into Jesus' presence. To acknowledge, right, we come around Jesus for formation and community. We come around Jesus to meet us as we fail, not just him, but one another. We come to Jesus because we need the strength to forgive the community that will fail us, as it inevitably will. And as we, become, as we come to Jesus, what I think we'll find is that it will empower us to engage in real community. Diedrich Bonhoeffer said, once the more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more everything else between us recedes and the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. It won't just be affinity around a shared interest. It won't just be we happen to live in the same geography. It won't be happen even because I like your character and personality because I may find you abrasive. And it won't matter because the only thing I will see when I see you is a person for whom Jesus died. Somebody, a fellow recipient of his mercy and grace. I will see in you a person who Jesus has called to engage its mission, and you will be my brother and sister in the battle that he's called us to. I will see in you a manifestation of the body of Christ, which I need in order to sustain me when I can no longer walk because you will help carry me and when you stumble, I will help hold you up. If Jesus is the only thing which draws us together, then my friends, we will be free to be engaged in community because it won't be about how charming we can be or how kind we can be or how gracious we can be or how busy we can be. It will be because Jesus sustains us in this community. And it's going to be marvelous. So what's the first step for us now? It's maybe signing up for a small group, but it's probably most certainly coming to the person of Jesus. And on this Sunday, it means coming together in communion, in community, because it's as we come to the bread and as we come to the cup that Jesus reminds us, as a community, taking communion together, you're here because you need me to feed you. So come and be fed so you have something to offer. It's here where Jesus will remind you, you need to be forgiven and you are. So you have good news to offer to the world that will hurt you and betray you. It's as we take these all together, acknowledging that we need Jesus, that we're going to be free to love one another honestly, faithfully, vulnerably, and in mission together. So brothers and sisters, let's prepare ourselves to take communion. Let me pray for you, invite the worship team to come up, and then Pastor Rich will lead us.
into the presence of Jesus and into one another's presence so that we'd be the kind of community that can follow Jesus wherever he sends us. Lord, um, draw us to you in these minutes so that we would have the nourishment we need uh, to extend love, care, commitment to the people around us for the sake of your name and your glory. Meet us in this moment, we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together as we prepare to take communion. And uh, I want to invite the folks that are going to be offering communion to the tables here. Greg talked about all of the, uh, the, the benefits of community. What, what Jesus Christ, when he dies on the cross, he just doesn't die so that our souls can go to heaven. He dies so that a new community is created and we're part of that. We're tasting that community. And so when we come to the table, we are recognizing we all come to the same table. Uh, we all come. There's, there's one meal. There's no light class here. There's some, some folks get better bread. Some goats less bread. We all come to the same table. We've made one in Christ. And his broken body and his poured out blood is to create a unified body in us. To create something that uh, the world cannot create. Only Christ can create. And so when we come here, the folks that are offering the bread are going to say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ poured out for you. And I want to invite you just to take it and go back to your seat, and I'll lead us back together. But we have a, God is inviting us to, to not just have our, our own individual relationship with Jesus, but that we're part of something larger, something deeper, that he's creating a new community here. And so we get to come to the table based on not our merit, but on his merit, not in our works, his works, not in our righteousness, his righteousness, not in our name, his name. That's why we come to the table. And so, Lord, thank you for uh, your grace that's been poured out on us, not just as individuals, but as, uh, us as a community. And you have great dreams for us as a church that we would be more than just individuals following you. We would be part of a community rooted in your love, rooted in love for one another. And so we come to the table of grace, a table of power, a table of love and forgiveness. And Lord, I pray that we would encounter uh, your great love today. So we take bread, we dip it in a cup. Lord, may you uh, transform us from the inside and out. We come to the table now. It's in Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. Come to the table now, lead us at the end. I want to give us a moment to... Uh, pause and be silent to create community um, in the way of Jesus, whether it's community in your home, uh, in the workplace, in a church. It really requires two things in our relationship with God as well. It requires repentance and forgiveness. A community cannot flourish unless there's repentance and forgiveness on a regular basis. And so we get an opportunity today to repent before God, to say, Lord, um, I know I've disrupted community between us. I want to receive your forgiveness. But what I also want to do is uh, today, uh, I want to give us a moment to repent in our human relationships. There's some areas that you know you've made a mistake. You know you've hurt someone. And at the end of this service, maybe God is saying, you need to make something right here. You need to apologize. You need to repent. You need to say, I was wrong there. And so uh, we take the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, um, and, and the expression of that is now repentance. And the other thing is forgiveness. Some of you, maybe today's a day of forgiveness.
maybe you've been carrying something for a long time and you hear God saying today, I want you to let it go. Today's day of forgiveness. Uh, and so repentance and forgiveness. And so I want to give us a moment of just silence, our own personal repentance before God and our repentance in human community as well. And receive God's forgiveness. And maybe today's the day where God sets you free because you've been harboring resentment and unforgiveness and bitterness and it's sapping your soul. And today is the day of freedom. So I want to give us a moment of silence and then we'll pray this prayer of repentance and confession together. But let's just be still in the presence of God for about a minute or so. Let's all pray this prayer of confession together. God of all mercy, we confess that we have sinned against you, opposing your will in our lives. We have denied your goodness in each other, in ourselves, and in the world you have created. We repent of the evil that enslaves us, the evil we have done, and the evil done on our behalf. Forgive, restore, and strengthen us through our Savior Jesus Christ, that we may abide in your love and serve only your will. Amen. Let's all take together. Amen. I want to invite the prayer team to come forward to my right as we close our service. Listen, at New Life, there are, there are three images that I come back to over and over where we're not to be. We're not to be a stadium of people. And we gather here together. A stadium is filled with uh, a crowd of spectators that we come and we do our religious, get our religious goodies on a Sunday morning and say, oh, that was wonderful. I paid my admission price. I gave an offering. This was great. And we are a stadium and nothing else. We're not to be a, a mall, a crowd of consumers. We're just here and, and what can you do for me? We're, we're not to be a, a subway car, which is a crowd of anonymous people in close proximity to each other. And many of us are anonymous. We don't even know each other's name. We know where we sit, but we don't know. Any, besides that, it's all we get. We are to be the family of Jesus on mission for Jesus. And everything that Greg talked about today, God wants us to begin to experience and demonstrate to the world. And so what a gift we can be to the world. And, and when Greg was talking about all the stories of community, people coming in and, 
cleaning your bathroom. I'm like, man, that sounds, that's community to me. I'm like, can I have that kind of community? Can you wash the dishes as well? I mean, but we all long for a community like that where we know we're not alone in our most vulnerable moments, that I can confess my sins that I've been holding in secret, and I confess my struggles that I know that I'm not alone. We all long for that. And it's going to happen. Not God doesn't just make it sometimes through trial and error and experimentation and forgiveness and repentance. And who knows what God will do. And so Greg mentioned that card there. You can fill it out, um, drop it downstairs. But we want to, as Greg mentioned, in the fall, start between 20 and 30 new small groups, which basically means connecting 200 to 300 more new lifers, which is my hope that this year we realize that our religious experience is not just relegated to a Sunday morning, but we're living with the family of Jesus on mission for Jesus. And so we have our prayer team here um, for whatever need you have. This is part of community right here, that you know you're not alone, that someone's here for you to pray with you. Um, for whatever needs you have. And so you can come up there. Um, however God's leading you, you can come forward. Uh, for the rest of us, I want to invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. If this is your first time here, we close every gathering with our hands in this posture. Why? Because we cannot give what we have not first received. And so this is a posture of receiving blessing, out of which we offer blessing to the world. And so with your hands and your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and may he keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he fill you with peace. May you walk out of this building in the power of the Holy Spirit, saying yes to this kind of community, saying yes to God's invitation for you, May you grow deeper in your relationship with God. May you grow deeper in the relationship with those around you. May you be an extension of God's blessing to the world. So I bless you all today in the strong, in the beautiful, in the reconciling name of Jesus. And the people of God said, amen. Grace and peace, everyone.